basically we found that in the area of climate change, in the area of waste reduction, water use, because landmines use a ton of water, actually, they use 45 billion tons of water. Um, and uh, a reduction of toxins, uh, nodules are extremely advantageous. Um, less than 90% and even often 100% less um, damaging. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Sea Has Many Voices. Very pleased this week to have two amazing people, uh, one of which I've known for more than half of my life, uh, a gentleman named uh, Steve Catone. I'm going to have him introduce himself in a moment. And then the other one is this a spark plug of a lady with ideas and perspectives that uh, has taught me a lot about how the world works. And they have recently authored a paper on comparing the impacts on the environment and on the economy of metals uh, for the earth over the next 10 to more years. And we're at a turning point in our society where uh, some people call it the fourth industrial revolution, where we are now relying on uh, metals is the new kind of the new oil. The new, it's, it's pretty much the last thing that the earth has to offer us that we cannot get it any other way, right? That's, that kind of has marked uh, rev industrial revolutions is when we extract things from the earth that we can't get in other ways. Um, it started out with stone, it went to wood, it went to bronze, it went to iron, it went to oil. And now we're in the, the age, I would argue, the age of metals. Uh, full disclosure is that I worked for a company uh, that involved in this deep green. I'm the chief ocean scientist and I'm on the board. And uh, Steve and uh, Steve and Katona, Dr. Steve and Katona and Dinah are uh, contractors for the company. Um, but we will be looking at this from an objective point of view. This is not an, this is not an advertising uh, piece for the company or anything like that, but it's important uh, from, from a journalistic point of view, I make that statement. So um, I spent the better part of my career in ocean conservation science, uh, studying the ocean, exploring the ocean. And during the course of that, I saw the degrada degradation of the ocean occurring. And it was in the early 1990s that I changed my career path away from traditional oceanography, having fun diving in submarines and scuba diving on coral reefs and looking for old bottles and shipwrecks. I mean, I was having a hell of a time. But when I went down one day to 18,000 feet and saw all this garbage, I'd said, I need to do something about this. And um, that has led me inexorably to this moment today where I'm working with a business that is on the edge of a major industrial extractive activity in the ocean for metals. And Stephen and Dinah, along with a few others, have spent the last year and a half writing a comprehensive analysis on what are the effects from a planetary point of view of extracting these metals from land or from the ocean. And we looked at it kind of like a binary choice. In the end, we probably always extract some metals from land and we will probably always extract metals from the ocean. But it's the ocean that has caused a lot of controversy and we've tried to bring some clarity to the discussion by doing this study. So thank you, Diana. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today. And you've made many formal presentations on this. The paper is on the web for those of you that would like all the details. Uh, today, I would like to go into, I call it kind of like the behind the scenes on this paper uh, and, and modern science and how we derive information and what this journey has meant for the two of you. So why don't we start off with, um, Diana, would you please introduce yourself and tell me how you found your way into this study? into us? How did you find us or how did we find you? Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Let's start um, with Steve. We'll start with Steve. Steve. Right. Steve. Um, we can make this Steve. Let's start with Steve. 
please introduce yourself to our audience uh, and just how did you find your way to this paper? How did you find your way to this work? And um, and what do you what what are your major? Just give me some impressions. Just, just tell us about yourself. Everybody's gonna want to know. They're looking at you right now. They're listening. <laughs> And, uh, it's been Tell a journey. Tell where you're calling from. Tell yeah, where you're I'm calling in Bar Harbor, Maine, hunkered yep. down and uh, trying to keep safe. And um, uh, I've been here since 1972 uh, when I was, and my wife Susan also were one of the first faculty members for at uh, the new College of the Atlantic. And uh, a few years after the college formed, a, a scraggly little student, and his name was Greg, came to the college from uh, Massachusetts, and he was already um, very precocious and very, very interested in the ocean. And so um, I, during the years that we worked together, first as a student-teacher relationship and then as colleagues and studying whales, uh, we got to know each other quite well. And um, as things happened, uh, I my training was in uh, plankton and whales and uh, ecology, particularly. And so um, I did research on those things and uh, taught. And um, after I finished uh, teaching, I became president of the college for 13 years. And then after um, leaving that, um, I worked with Greg, when he was vice president, senior vice president at the New England Aquarium um, and helped him um, do some studies there. And then he went to Conservation International and I consulted uh, for a couple of years, helping him design the marine program there. And then um, I was hired uh, there and uh, to develop the Ocean Health Index. And with colleagues at the University of California, uh, we did that for gosh, six or seven years. And then uh, when I retired from CI, uh, again, I followed Greg and did some consulting for Deep Green. And in particular, Greg introduced this topic and he said, gee, what are the effects? Um, you know, uh, how much water does a mine use and how much energy and how much carbon do they put out and all of that kind of thing. And so that's when um, I uh, became involved in writing a white paper first, a preliminary white paper, and then um, some of the folks at uh, Deep Green said, well, this is great, but let's see if we can quantify it further. And that was the, the beginning of the white paper. And luckily, uh, Dinopolicus was brought in um, at the very start and she brings a whole skill set that I'd, I didn't have. Um, in particular, a lot of business acumen, a lot of uh, systems analysis work, um, business um, e economics, and uh, a formal uh, way of analyzing things that um, was really what we had to do. And so, as Greg mentioned, um, she really was a spark plug of this work. To me, this, this is my uh, new nickname. I, have, I haven't had what? that nickname before, spark plug. I'm going to create a Twitter handle with that nickname now. Sparky. We call you Sparky. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> really good ideas. But this, this study epitomizes what is needed in society today. And that is a multidisciplinary, uh, mm -hmm. almost view of topic matter. Because science has traditionally been very siloed. You get these people that know a whole lot about this thin, deep area, and we still need them. We need them desperately. But what we need more of are people that have that speciality, but also have an awareness of a larger group of knowledge over here and are able to integrate that. I feel like that is the need in society today, is to be able to, and Steve, that's one of the reasons I went to you. You've always, I mean, you did your PhD on pheromones in phytoplankton. And oh, most zooplankton. People, zooplankton, sorry. Most people don't know what pheromones are and most people don't know what zooplankton are, but you, I mean, you did very esoteric hard research 
in the 60s and 70s, then you did whale research, and, and you always had a very broad view of the world and know that it's not black and white. And, uh, and you collect art. I see the Eskimo art in the background. You're really quite a man. So I knew you were, you were the guy, and you and I have a relationship. So that's why I went to you first. And then it became rapidly clear that our view, our knowledge base was good, but it needed more. And entrance, da-da, spark plug. Yeah. How did you come to us? And what was your background? So great. Um, just by the way, hi, I'm, I'm in the Czech Republic calling in. Uh, and I just heard some thunder, so you might get some fun side effects in the background. Um, so my, I think I'll tell you a little bit about my background and how it ties together and then how I found you guys. It was through Erica, who is the VP of strategy of Deep Green. Um, I kind of collect experiences to try to learn the bigger picture systems view of the world and how different parts of them interact. And I did that throughout the first 15 years of my career. So my undergraduate degree was actually in physics. I was very science um, oriented when I started. And I spent nine years working as an engineer, mostly on big systems as a systems engineer where you have to manage, you know, multidisciplinary, you know, electric input software, hardware, uh, lots of different fields of expertise into putting together an airplane or a satellite or something involving maybe thousands of people in this project. Um, and that gave me, that experience gave me the um, interest and rigor to um, try to structure complex trade-offs and to understand that you can never get everything you want uh, of all the criteria that you care about. And to frame things in terms of risk analysis and trade-offs and see it all in one view to where you can step back and get a picture of what's actually going on. So oftentimes people might really obsess or care about a few details, but not realize that that getting exactly what you want there incurs either safety risk or cost risk or schedule lots of things that all together have to work. Um, so that was sort of my professional grounding. I went and got an MBA because I had also interest in how organizations function and work and all the, the business side and the entrepreneurial side of things. And I spent two years as a management consultant doing various strategy projects and formalizing my organizational skills in different contexts beyond just engineering a complex system. But um, it all came around because one of the things that drew me about this deep, the Deep Green project is, uh, or deep sea mining in general is just that you're dealing with these massive systems that have just the kinds of trade-offs we were looking at when I was a system engineer. Um, but the path that eventually led me there, I went and started independently contracting after that two formal years. I spent a lot of time internationally. I'm very, very drawn to international interest and very values-driven person looking for big global causes and wanting to put effort into things that I think really matter. Um, and sort of the geopolitical charge to it too, which is I'm, also, I'm all often drawn to a cause where um, the, the surface story is not the whole truth and to understand the true consequence, you have to dig a little deeper and then bringing that information to people so that they can understand what's actually happening. That type of problem fundamentally is most attractive to me. So. Um, I got a second master's in econo economics in London and soon thereafter I was introduced to Erica. They needed somebody that could replicate a study that uh, started off with just the, a very technical, kind of back to my software engineering days, uh, a technical model of how does the climate change impact um, life cycle add up for this big complex system. And then once we started on that, it grew. I was I met Steve and Greg, I really was drawn to the team and how I was really, really impressed by how you could have strong environmentalists, ocean conservationists like you guys who, who put environmental impact over profit motive and who are driven by that first. And that really, the more I learned about you guys and the more I felt that, I really was drawn to the cause even more for that reason. So, and that grew into a 12 month project. Thank you. Well, so you guys are a part of uh, a team. I, I should mention also, there's others that are involved in this that we can't get them all here at once, but we have a geologist. We have a, uh, 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 Erica is a 
uh, she's another polymath kind of involving economics and space and all these things and, and, and a couple of others. But today we're focusing on, on you guys. And you have, uh, I can tell Erica, you've got passion. You want to do the right thing. And I, and I find, I find most people in the world want to do the right thing if only they knew what it was. <laughs> and that seems to be the problem we're facing is mm. the, the world is complex and so, uh, so op there's so many options that it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. And this issue that we have confronted uh, is a prime example. And just for our listeners, I'm gonna restate what the issue is again. The issue is that the bottom of the ocean in certain areas has metal in various forms. And the kind of metal that we're focused on are called polymetallic nodules. And they look, there's one right here. And they grow under special conditions uh, in the ocean. And the conditions that they require are a certain depth, a certain chemical composition of the water, um, a certain temperature, and you'll find nodules, they're all over the world, and they kind of grow like a, you might imagine a pearl. They keep laying on layers of molecules slowly. And the nodule I'm holding in my hand might be anywhere from seven to 10 million years old. And while they grow all over the world, the ones that have the kind of metals that we are interested in, and that's primarily battery metals, because the new, fourth industrial revolution, the renewable energy future is gonna require a lot of batteries. Uh, uh, these grow in the kind of quantities and proportionalities that we want in a few places that we know so far in fairly high densities. And these areas are a small fraction of the ocean floor. The, the area that we're currently examining is less than 1% of the ocean floor. So keep that in mind and it's deep, it's four kilometers down, very dark, um, inaccessible part of the ocean. And it's also interestingly on the high seas, which means it's beyond the sovereign territory of any one nation. So it falls into the UN. And uh, these problems uh, I find, like you, Dinah, uh, important and, and, and very, very fascinating, you know, in terms of uh, approaching them. Um, so, the, um, and you, and it's, it's become a very contentious issue as well. And I, I will state it on this show that I would very much like to get some, um, some of the opponents to this industry on the podcast to, to voice their views. But today, though, was not that kind of a day. Today was really to add some texture and some background to the paper, which, uh, can be found online, um, and we'll put that on the website uh, on how to access this paper. There'll also be some formal, more academic presentations of it. Um, it's also risky for professionals. You know, when I was approached by this company, I was I decided to leave Conservation International, where I was the chief scientist, uh, and I was looking at some options. I had a job offer at the World Economic Forum, a full-time job there, and a couple others. But this one really attracted me because I could see it as a global solution. Um, and I wanted to go to global solutions. So I, I, I went there, and I knew it was a one-way street, because, uh, at least for the time being, because many NGOs have a uh, preset uh, notion that deep sea mining is bad. It sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> if you were a donor and you didn't know much about the ocean and somebody walked into your office and said, hey, will you help save the ocean? And they say, well, I, I definitely want to help you save the ocean. What are you doing? And I said, well, well a few things. You could help me, um, uh, maybe you could help me trace the, the source of reactive nitrogen and phosphorus out of all the major, major river mouths in the world and how to alleviate the dead zones that those cause through eutrophication processes and uh, the ensuing anoxic zones, uh, which involve many thousands of different industries up and down the river. Or you could help me stop deep sea mining. What do you say? 
ah, I'll, I'll go with deep sea mining. I mean, it's a very, it's kind of an attractive, uh, catchy way to uh, 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 try to save the ocean. And for that reason, there's, a, there's quite a, quite a uh, mostly donors have risen up and are, are um, resourcing a, a relatively small number of uh, NGOs to, to fight this. And I confronted it head on a year and a half ago at the Economist Ocean Summit in Abu Dhabi, where I was up on stage in front of 2,000 people having a debate with a, a campaigner, essentially. He wasn't a scientist, but he was a campaigner from uh, um, the Deep Sea Coalition. And it was the, I think it was the first time that an oceanographer like myself had stood up and really taken a position on this. And now, a year and a half later, I think we have begun to build uh, information and a case. And by the way, I've always had the view that if we found something in our exploration, in our studies, in our work, that showed this is going to be worse for the planet than terrestrial mining, and terrestrial mining has a lot of downsides to it, then I would, I would walk away from it. I mean, I'm not... I'm not committed to this blindly. I'm committed to this because I believe it is a solution. If I was still at an NGO and I knew as much as I do now, I would be putting that in, I would have that NGO promote this activity. So there's a certain passion that you all share, that I share, that the company shares, our investors share. And uh, it's a conundrum though, because uh, it's a very volatile and, uh, passion driven on the other, it's called side as well. Um, so the paper that you guys have worked on and you have put endless hours into it, thank you very much, um, to me is a uh, extremely informative paper and, and lays out uh, findings. And I wondered if uh, you guys could just top of mind sort of headline findings. Uh, again, this is a, this is kind of like a behind-the-scenes podcast about the paper. Uh, I can direct the listeners through our website to a much more detailed scientific presentation. But let's just say the, the, the headline findings. We are now entering the age of metals. We don't have enough metal on land. I mean, well, no, no, we do have. We don't have enough metal in circulation to have recycling solve the problem, and something around eleven times more average some is thousands of times more some is two times more but just say on average 11 times more metal is going to be required to get us to a, a state where generators windmills batteries uh, cell phones all the things that we use metal for will be satisfied and metal is a wonderful these metals are a wonderful substance because they can be used over and over and over again I look at them like a rubber band. A battery essentially is like pulling a rubber band, setting it, and then you release it, and you get that energy. And then you can reset it again, and you can reset it endlessly. The, 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 atom, the atomic nature of uh, this, this phenomenon um, does not degrade over time. Uh, and we cannot make these metals. They can only be made in the heart of stars. So it's not a question of us setting up a manufacturing facility on land somewhere and creating uh, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and copper. We have to recover them from the universe somewhere. There's a lot of it in the universe, by the way. There's a lot of it in the earth. Um, and uh, so what are your headlines from the report? Dana, what do you think? So let me react to uh, one point that you're making that's very important to understand is uh, the whole, the genesis of the paper, a lot of it was focused around climate change impact. So I can say a little bit about that, although it grew to where we found that there are so many other impacts to the environment and to society that almost dwarf the benefits um, from the climate change benefits from using nodules. Um, but if, if you look at the remaining carbon budget that the uh, the IPCC has laid out to say to prevent temperature rise from having a, a good chance of not going a one and a half degrees Celsius by around 2050. 
something like 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide that can be emitted. Um, we look to get to the future that's green, that uses a lot of renewable electricity and more electric vehicles. To do all that takes metal. And to, there's not enough metal in circulation right now to recycle all of it to make that extra metal that we're gonna need. So in the near term, it means the metal has to be taken out of the ground. So to get to a cleaner, greener future, we have to first take metal out of the ground. But the way metals currently taken out of the ground and processed causes a lot of pollution and damage. And that's what we're looking at. So to get to that IPCC recommended future, you're actually using a lot of that carbon budget just to make the metal. So um, we look, I can introduce the, the 1 billion electric vehicle future scenario is what we anchored most of our comparisons. So I can give you headlines related to that. Um, Morgan Stanley projects that around 2047 is when we may hit that number. So we have about 27 years remaining to get there. Um, anchored to that, the climate change impact difference with a lot of assumptions that we could go into, but given the assumptions, if you continue, we continue to status quo and get all that extra metal from the land, it's around 10 billion tons out of that 400. So 1 40th of the remaining budget that the whole planet has for everything it does industrially would be sucked up just to make metals, just those four metals just to go into the batteries just for EVs. Wow. But if you think about that one use, that one tra transition we have to make out of many, that one is already sucking up so much of the budget. That's why the scale of the metal impact is such a big problem. And the reduction is something like a 70% reduction under an optimistic scenario for landowners. 70% less on, uh, I should say, on just emissions. And there's two components to climate change impact. Uh, there's carbon sequestration, which um, just has to do with, you're also disrupting land, which sequesters carbon. That's equivalent to releasing more uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And the difference there is more like 90%, 90% less potential impact if you use nodules versus landowners. So there's one headline. And a lot of the numbers that we ended up looking into were in the 90s. And that was sort of a shock and also slightly confirming what we thought might be the case, but numbers that we additionally kept looking up, kept, uh, kept being well, in that I'm, huge. I'm in the ocean. I'm being the devil's advocate here, but why go yep. to the ocean? There's Steve. nowhere else to go. You, you know, we, you can't take metals out of the air. You, you can only take them from the land or the sea. Oh, well, you could mine meteorites or the moon, and people have thought about that, but uh, that's not going to be possible for a long time, if ever. And, and the, the, the sources of metals in the ocean are um, pretty well known. And so that's, that's really the choice. Well, the, I mean, there is plenty of there is plenty of these metals on land. I mean, the mantle is metal, is nickel, but it, it's the the question is the, the damage, right? I mean, the question is what's the lightest environmental touch on the planet? What's the best way in, to ensure that we get this to a not only to a sustainable system, right? I mean, that's really what you're you're looking for. Well, Dinah looked at the quality of ores on land and um, comparing them to the uh, quality uh, and quantity of ores on the seafloor in the area we're talking about, the clarion Clipperton fracture zone, is um, that's a real contrast. Donnie, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so the, the, the grade of an ore, can I go back to, I want to go back to something first and then I'll respond to your question. Can we do that? Um, I just, when you say deep sea mining, I get this even from my friends that are introduced to this topic when I'm first telling them about it. First, yeah. they just remember, they think I said oil drilling. I mean, they have this image that anytime you're going into the sea to get some material from the earth, it's invasive and they, and they correlate it with, with oil. They think that's what we're doing. 
Um, there's several different kinds of resources in the ocean and nodules are just sitting there on the seafloor. So it's a mostly non-invasive process to scoop them up and bring them to the surface. And so, and why, why ocean? Because of all of the options that we've looked at and we see, it seems to be by far the least invasive and the lowest impact across a huge number of indicators that we looked at and considered with often reductions in the 98 percentile. Um, in terms of the difference in the resources that Stephen asked, um, so there's this concept called ore grade. That's just the percentage of an ore that's actually that economically viable, sellable nickel or whatever product you want. Typical percent for nickel these days is one, 1.52% nickel. Um, cobalt is an order of magnitude less than that. Um, copper and nickel both have been exponentially declining for the last decades because, you know, obviously it's much cheaper to first mine the stuff that has higher grade and all that stuff is pretty much run out on the land. Um, the issue is if you're mining 1% ore versus 10% grade ore, to mine that 1%, you have to do 10 times as much digging, 10 times as much material has to be brought up, and then you have a lot more waste to process. So the environmental impact is worse as ore grades decline. And for nickel and cobalt, which are these two critical metals for the supply chain for electric vehicle batteries, it continues to, or sorry, for nickel, for nickel and copper, which are needed for EVs, it's been declining and continues to. And so the average ore grade in the CCZ, according to resource surveys that we've, um, uh, uh, so the average ore grade in the CCZ for, um, for nickel and cobalt are more than twice the land ore average. And this is a good, good point to make a quick uh, statement that there are many different kinds of deep sea mining, but let's put them into three basic categories. One is the polymetallic nodules, which we're talking about. These sit on the seafloor unattached at four kilometers in the Pacific Ocean. Another is something called cobalt crusts, and that's the top of underwater seamounts. And then the other one is the metals that are deposited around hydrothermal vents. We call them sulfides. We are not talking about cobalt crusts, and we are not talking about sulfides. We are only talking about polymetallic nodules, because these are the special case, I believe, in the whole deep sea mining arena, just to, just to clear that out. And maybe you'd like to add on to what Dinah's artfully and articulately said about the differences. You know, why, why do we go to the ocean? Why not, why not go to that mountain? She said nickel was 1%. That means if you have a mountain that's as high as Mount uh, Washington, you'd have to tear it down and you'd get 1% of the mountain was nickel if the mountain happened to have nickel in it and then the rest of it is waste right so that's an obvious advantage but what else what else is there can you give us the headlines on the positive uh, aspects that are backed up in your report which we will direct people to well just to finish this topic the nodules are constant relatively in their in their metal content so there's no decrease um, as you take the first nodules, the next ones are going to have the same value. And um, you'd have to mine four times as much rock to get the same amount of metals as you would get from uh, nodules. So basically, you need 25% only of the material to get the metals from nodules. And um, all of that waste that comes on the landmines because you have to um, dig up overlying rock and soil and so forth and you have to store it somewhere on site and um, mining is the biggest contributor of of waste of any industry something like 350 billion tons a year so um, the, and the and the waste isn't innocent it's not just rocks lying there uh, both erosion from water and also bacteria um, produce um, they wear away the rock and water takes um, the chemicals inside of the rock uh, selenium arsenic lead and many others something like two dozen different chemicals erode from that rock and um, go into groundwater, lakes, rivers, streams, and pollute it um, in ways that make it 
uh, unacceptable for drinking, um, harmful to fish, unacceptable to wildlife too. So that's a that's an enormous problem. You don't have any of that with um, nodules. So um, basically, we found that in the area of climate change, in the area of waste reduction, water use, because landmines use a ton of water. Actually, they use 45 billion tons of water. Um, in um, the reduction of toxins, uh, nodules are extremely advantageous. Um, less than 90% and even often 100% less um, damaging. And then there's uh, effects on people. Some, we found that about 1,800 people would die during the almost 30 years that it takes to mine the metals for a billion batteries um, because mining's dangerous. And that's just the miners. Uh, deaths in the surrounding populations aren't even counted in that. And um, we had to estimate from experience of the offshore oil and gas industry and shipping industry what fatalities might be in uh, the nodules case. And it's something like 47. So a uh, large decrease in uh, fatalities. And um, then nodules completely eliminate the problem of child labor in mining of uh, cobalt, which is endemic in uh, Africa and particularly the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo. Some 40,000 children are involved in mining um, worldwide. And so that's a problem that goes away. Similarly, there's no disturbance to cultures or indigenous people because the area we're talking about is 500 miles from any, any place on land. And so um, these kinds of advantages are uh, very, very important. Then there's the question of, of wildlife, marine wildlife, um, that's harmed by mining compared to the wildlife that's harmed by mining on land. And that's where things get kind of interesting because um, there are animals down there for sure. And it, it's a very different uh, community than we see on land. For example, many, most of the animals are attached, either attached to nodules, uh, or they're um, on, found on the surface of the sediment. And uh, you know, that's not something we see on land. You look around and there are no attached animals. Furthermore, many of them are filter feeders straining out from the water one way or another, uh, small particles that are either um, organic uh, particles or um, plankton eat or grubbing it up from the surface of the mud or even between uh, sediment grains. And um, again, that's quite different from on land. The only filter feeding animals on land, and they're not really filter feeding, but spiders, some of their webs are straining insects from air, but nobody else is doing that other than active predators uh, catching insects, say. So we're, we're, many of those animals are going to get hurt in mining uh, and collecting nodules for sure, because um, the top 10 centimeters of sediment gets scraped up. Um, animals living on the nodules are gonna be killed. Not all the nodules will be taken by the way, even in the mined areas, something like 85% efficiency. So some will be left behind, but the clouds of sediment uh, caused uh, by um, uh, the collection vehicles is a matter of concern. And pe people, the engineers are trying to figure out how to minimize that, but it won't be eliminated. It can't be completely eliminated. So harm will be done. And the question I think that society has to come to grips with is what set of animals will be harmed in the, um, getting the, the metals that everyone foresees as needed. Um, 
And we, if we don't get the metals and make the transition to a renewable economy, then we're cooked by climate change. And the bottom of the ocean is affected by climate change too. So um, we have a limited amount of time to make this decision. And um, there are a lot of values and philosophical kinds of decisions that are gonna to have to be made. Um, and that's a tough position to be put in. I'd rather not be there. I don't like to harm animals. And I like the animals on the bottom. I think they're beautiful. And uh, a lot of them, we don't, we don't even know their names. They're all completely new to science. So um, it's, it's a real dilemma, but not one that we can shirk. Is there any, is there any feature that's better to getting land, metal from land than ocean? It jumps out at you. One topic that you said, wow, well, there's this. I mean, because from what I've seen in the results, and I'm an author, everybody, so you know, you've got to realize that, but we have had it peer reviewed, and I feel, I feel very solid about, about the science, but is there anything offhand? I mean, there's one indicator out of many, and I'll. I I want to get back and respond to what Sue said in a second, but um, just to answer your question. Um, one of the indicators, the cumulative energy demand, which is one of several different ways to measure the energy that you're extracting. That is something that is based, basically is even between the two. It's a tiny bit higher, 3% higher with nodules, which is in the noise of the assumptions at this point. Um, but Note that that includes hydropower energy used to process onshore the nodules and to convert them into metals. A large part of that cumulative energy demand for nodules was clean hydropower. And another part of it is coal that's used as a reductant, which is the process by which oxygen molecules that are attached to the manganese and nickel in the ore, those oxygen are have to be peeled off somehow. One way to do is to take something with carbon, react them together and the carbon picks off some O2 and that comes off as CO2, right? So the current way, the current commercially viable standard way to do it is to use coal, but they're expected to be technologies in the future where that may not be necessary to be done with coal. So um, one could look at that number and say, look, the cumulative energy, the energy that you need to process nodules is the same as landowners and probably somebody will say that. And, I would caveat by saying part of it is clean energy and another part of it might be reduced in the future. Um, that's the first one I would say. Stephen, do you have one? Oh yeah. Um, one is the number of jobs. So remember here, we're talking only about obtaining the four metals needed to make one billion 75 kilowatt hour batteries, like essentially a Tesla battery. Um, and we're talking only about that demand. So the rest of the demand that the world has for metals is undoubtedly going to go on and land mining will probably uh, be supplying that for a long time. Um, but what is going to happen if the nodules are collected and processed is that fewer jobs will be, it will require fewer people. And the jobs for the most part will be higher um, skill level than just digging, um, you know, digging in the mines, open pit or underground to get the ores or processing and refining. The nodules still require the processing and refining part, although it's planned to be done a little more cleverly so that there are no waste products and everything can be used. Um, but no matter how you look at it, um, getting the billion batteries metals from the ocean will provide fewer jobs than it getting them from land. Now, um, 
While that said, land mining is not a static enterprise and all the companies are figuring out trying to reduce their water use or find alternatives such as seawater and trying to reduce their labor costs. So um, they're uh, investing in machines that are gonna replace many workers. So we don't exactly know um, the side-by-side -side comparison as years go forward, but our analysis does indicate that to make the billion batteries, fewer jobs would be required um, from nodules than on land. Thank you. What, what, was the, what, what surprised you the most? Do you remember any moment in this thing that like surprised mm -hmm. you or it entertained you or in, in, uh, horrified you? Yeah, or Greg, something? it was when you burst into song during one of our Wednesday phone calls. No, that was <laughs> my favorite memory. <laughs> what, what, what was the song? I can't remember. Uh, I, I made it up. Sorry. I, I mean, up. Okay. yeah. I Actually, it maybe. I uh, wish I could. One of I the things I've missed in life is not because I play the piano, but I can't sing. Oh, we could do a piano duet sometime. Oh, that'd be fun. You could. As concert oh. reps. Yeah, yeah. If I, I'm, I'm convinced if I sang, I'd play the piano a lot more. Um, what, what about you, Steve? Besides me bursting into song, which I never did, <laughs> what, what was your, was there anything that like jumped out at you on this? Yeah, I'm surprised that I'm an advocate for um, mining <laughs> modules from the nodules from the ocean and causing you know the impacts that 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 will cause if you'd have asked me certainly back in the time when we were uh, studying together at College of the Atlantic I'd have said Jesus right leave it alone is what I would have said I know a published Say something on that note. Yeah. Uh, more of my serious answer to what surprised me, but I was very, very pleasantly surprised by how uh, sort of what I was saying earlier drew me to this group, but how committed you guys are to the science and to doing, like you guys are first environmentalists and wanting people with the broad vision of impacting the world in a good, in a positive way. And that, um, that comes out in, for example, how much, how many different scientific projects are being undertaken is so, uh, sorry, you'll have to edit this. Um, you keep going. Um, what I like, what, one of the upsides of exploring and going into an area that's so unknown, that's the politics behind it is interesting. There's this body called the International Seabed Authority that's administering everything that happens. Think of it as sort of a UN type offshoot group. But um, since they're, they're in the process of formulating these regulations and through my interaction with Deep Green and coming up with the data and formulating this paper and understanding what's happening, and I've interacted with the ISA as well and several of the delegates there, I mean, Deep Green is, is like, a bunch of environmentalists trying to say, here's all the science we need to, we need all contractors to do. We need all these studies, these robust studies about, we're, we're gonna learn so much about what's in the deep ocean that we don't know now because of the fact that we wanna know more about it before we start collecting nodules. So there, I'm learning there's so much opportunity and the leadership of the company, I was truly impressed that they're thinking about these things. They're trying to think about all the good things that can come out of now having access to that zone. It could be, um, I mean, there's big data implications, there's genetics research, there's all this stuff. That's what surprised me in a really, really compelling way. And I wanna say, and I wanna say when I found that out, you might, when I found that out, that's what compelled me to bring, um, to bring Deep Green to get a case study written about them because I was really impressed by their holistic big picture strategy of how, all of the good things they could try to come up with. And that contractors that are like-minded, that I hope others will be as well, that are thinking about these opportunities. And my only concern coming out is that not enough of them are going to be thinking as many of these opportunities. And I hope that there's enough influence that they do as well. 
but there's so much opportunity to benefit the planet if um, if they're taken in science and engineering and pharma pharmacy pharmaceuticals. Yeah, yeah we, Gerard Barrett is the leader of our company, and he's the reason I joined. He's uh, uh, he's got vision, he's got commitment, and uh, um, he he's he's the guy. You know, he really knows how to make this work. So um, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come back on the show. We've only covered a little piece, but I think it gives uh, our audience and it gives me a little glimpse of the really genuine, um, passionate, uh, smart, informed people that are working on this. And we need more. So all of you listening out there, uh, join us. Uh, communicate with me. I won't burden the two of you with that communication, but communicate with me and others and ask questions and we'll try to do more of this kind of thing in the future. So uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, uh, thank you all uh, the audience for See As Many, uh, the See As Many Voices podcast. Thank you to the uh, Buxbaum Foundation, uh, Dee Green is the sponsor. Um, uh, Ed, Edgar Schein, Dr. Edgar Schein is one, just to name a few. Uh, it's co-executive produced with Ian Summerhalder, a good friend of mine and a passionate um, environmentalist and actor. Uh, and there are many others to thank. I tend to sort of pick it out, uh, each one, uh, whoever happens to be top of mind at that moment. Uh, and uh, production uh, supervised by Clark Brandon. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>